I'm Trip. I spent the first part of the 21st century as a film snob, rejecting any sort of mainstream comedy. And I'm Ross. I'm slowly film by film, taking Trip through the films he sadly dismissed or smartly avoided until now. Welcome to A Trip Through Comedy, a podcast examining studio comedies from around the turn of the century. Trip, our exit today has us looking at two action comedies that tried to excite and entertain audiences in 1999. First, there is Chill Factor, written by Drew Gitlin and Mike Cheetah, and directed by Hugh Johnson. Second, there is Blue Streak, written by Michael Berry, John Blumenthal, and Stephen Carpenter, and directed by Les Mayfield. Both films try to walk the fine line between providing us great action set pieces and quippy one-liners. Chill Factor puts its action stylings ahead of its comedic aspirations, while Blue Street leans more heavier into the comedy realm, thanks in large part to its star, Martin Lawrence. So Tripp, what do you remember about either of these movies, and are you a fan of action comedies in general? I do. I do like a, a good action comedy, I think. Action isn't always my, like, go-to genre, but I do enjoy watching them. Uh, I enjoy kind of turning my brain off sometimes. Um, and so, especially, like, in 99, I was seeing a lot, a lot of action movies still, I feel like, you know, in high school with some friends. It was a lot more the... Um, the war and spy genres, I think. So somehow both of these, I think because they both had leads who were more comedic with Martin Lawrence and Cuba Gooding Jr., I think, um, kind of avoided these at the time. So I, I really knew nothing about either of them going in, as you, I'm sure, heard last week as I tried to explain what they were about. <laughs> but um, yeah, no. Uh, what about you? Had you seen either of these before? So no, um, Chill Factor I didn't really know anything about, um, and Blue Streak, as I kind of talked about a bit last week, I I definitely remembered Blue Streak, and I mm-hmm. definitely remember kind of wanting to see it and finding like the trailer kind of funny, I feel like, and it felt like a big blockbuster thing. I remembered that poster of him standing like with holding up the badge yeah. kind of idea, like that that image was in my head. So it's actually been one I had been kind of interested in checking out for this podcast, just to see kind of, hey, like, you know, would a 2024 Ross like it? <laughs> uh, as we are now actually, you know, 25 years. We haven't even mentioned this kind of there. We're at the 25-year mark for all of these we are, movies. We are, now that we've moved um, into 2024 here. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, would 25 years later... Would a older and wiser and more mature Ross find this funny or not? So you know, but we're going to start I, with I think, Chill Factor, right, Ross? Yeah, yeah. So, Trip, what is the plot of Chill Factor? Tim Mason is a drifter who has settled in Jerome, Montana, where he works as the night guy at a small diner and convenience store. During the day, he goes fly fishing, where he has befriended Doctor Richard Long a military scientist who works at the local army base. But Dr. Long's past has come back to haunt him when recently released Colonel Andrew Brinner comes to town. Ten years earlier, Brinner was put in prison and blamed for an accident involving a weapon Long created that killed 18 soldiers. He has now come to Jerome to kill Long, steal his latest horrifying creation, nicknamed Elvis, and sell it to the highest bidder. Mortally wounded, Long is able to get to the diner where Mason works and give him Elvis. However, there is an important fact. Elvis must stay at below 50 degrees Fahrenheit or else it will explode and destroy the entire state of Montana. 
Mason enlists the help of Arlo, an ice cream delivery guy who has come to deliver a shipment of ice cream to the store to attempt to get Elvis to another nearby military base. Arlo has his own issues, though. He stole the truck from his employer as payment for not being promoted as promised. And that is just the first half hour of the film. For the remaining hour, the two try to avoid the bad guys as well as a local deputy who has it out for Mason. In the end, the bad guys are killed, Elvis is returned to the military, and our heroes try to chat up two sexy nurses. So, Ross, did this movie hit the sweet spot, or did it leave you cold as ice? Ay, 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 this movie, chill factor. Um, it's bland to me. It's just bland. Mm -hmm. I don't find it very funny, but it's also, like, not making tons of stuff that doesn't age well this as i kind of said in the beginning i think this is more of an action movie first comedy quip second and i think it's action is not very good i don't think it's quips are very good mm -hmm. and i think you have two stars who seem to be in completely different movies <laughs> like skeet ulrich and cuba good jr do not seem to be acting in the same movie no, no, not at all. I think, like, I watched this movie 36 hours ago, and there's a lot that, like, even I, I have the Wikipedia summary up now to remind me of parts of this, because it just, I enjoyed it as I was watching it. It was a fine, you know, afternoon watch, but no, like, nothing, nothing in it really sticks at all. Um, I think I found it a little funnier than you. Part of that is because context matters, and, like, I turned this on just, well, it's on our list. It must be a comedy. So I really thought for about the first 15 minutes that it was like parodying stuff. And I think I laughed at stuff I wasn't supposed to laugh at because I thought <laughs> it was making fun of it when I'm like, oh no, this is just trying to be a serious, you know, action movie kind of. And then really it only becomes a comedy when you throw Cuba Gooding Jr., and kind of his, you know, wisecracking persona in there, who kind of lightens things up. Everything else is played pretty straight throughout this movie. Do, do you mean the scene in which, in 20, you know, we are now watching this in 2024, but it's the year after Oppenheimer, uh, which is one of the biggest movies of 2023, and we have David Paymer say, I am death destroyer of worlds, and yes. I couldn't take that line fully seriously, being like, exactly. you gotta be kidding me? Well, I think I thought a lot of the dialogue was kind of parody, and then that bomb goes off, and it is gruesome how yes. those men die. It was like, oh, I don't think this is funny anymore. Like, you know. This seems, this movie feels like a Hollywood Mad Libs. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, Take the speed kind of like, you know, template, right? You yeah. can't go under 50 miles an hour. You can't have this go under 50 degrees, right? Yes. And then it's like, let's take two people who in 1999 are having, you know, some juice, right? Mm -hmm. Skeet Ulrich is about three years removed from Scream, right? Yeah. Where he mm -hmm. is really good in he is you know really kind of that's a huge actually 96 he's in that and the craft two mm -hmm. big movies that kind of help him and then the next year he's in as good as it gets oddly enough with cuba gooden jr who's also in that movie right so you have skeet ulrich having some juice from scream you have cuba gooden jr being about in reality by the time he's cast probably about a year removed from actually winning the oscar for mm -hmm. jerry Maguire, right? And he's done 
A Few Good Men. He's done Boys in the Hood. He's done as good as it gets. He he is kind of funny. He is this kind of, you know, that kind of energy. And they just kind of were like, I don't know, we'll just throw them together and we'll put it in this movie. Well, and it's, it's two actors who I feel they were really trying to turn into A-list stars. Yes. And neither of them ever really found the right material to, like, click as people who could lead their own movies. I think they're both really good... They're both at their best in supporting turns, kind of, in other people's movies. Yes. And the funny thing is, Skeet Ulrich is really great at playing the straight man while somebody else is playing the comedy, because that is Scream. Like, he's essentially... Matthew... And Skeet Ulrich's given recent interviews talking about this, that he was confounded by Matthew Lillard's, like, entire performance at Scream at first, because he didn't get it, until he was, like, told this is a comedy. Like, there's elements of this that's comedy. I don't think anybody told him that this was going to be a comedy. No, I don't think this movie's also like the people behind the scenes are all people who really this is their only you know work right. You Mm -hmm. have two screenwriters who never write another script. You have a director in Hugh Johnson who this is his only directing credit. He's done some you know kind of uh, camera work and director photography on other movies and a lot Um, of Ridley Scott stuff. Like he's worked like I was looking like he's had different like camera jobs starting with The Duelists and like moving up through like White Squall and 1492 and GI Jane and and Kingdom of Heaven too. Yeah, but you know. I, I don't know if kind of coming from the Ridley Scott school of, you know, filmmaking fits like buddy comedy, you know, screen type or a speed type movie. Yeah, but the action in this is even like very low rent. It feels like a movie that in 1999, even the way it looks or anything, this is like a movie that was suddenly at a blockbuster that appeared in a blockbuster. Like it's it doesn't. It, it does almost have a straight to video feel to it. Yes. Yeah. And it and so it's it's just a very bizarre, you know, kind of thrown together element to this mm-hmm. that it, the plot doesn't really make much sense. It's a whole lot of who do you ever really understand what Elvis actually is? No. No, is it a bomb? Really... Is it a virus? Like I didn't really get a that. And then it also like I, I am a real sucker for like average man gets thrown into action movie mode, right? Like that can be a really funny trope. And here you have two of them, right? Like they're just kind of two average Joes who end up with this bomb that they have to get rid of, right? But suddenly they seem to know all of this. Like they almost adapt to it much too well. Like there's yeah. none of the good humor of like them you know, accidentally getting themselves out of trouble or anything like that. It's just like, yeah, we'll climb on top of some uh, trucks here and we'll talk to the military and we'll know exactly what all these solutions are. Triple, I appreciate your unintentional uh, ice cream reference, uh, referencing good humor, um, (laughs) which works so well with this movie of an ice cream truck. Um, Yeah, it's just, it's such a movie that just feels kind of like at the end of it i just kind of was like this is mindless nonsense like i just don't Mm -hmm. even it's not like last week where i was like i think we were both like angry (laughs) like this is just kind of like shoulder shrug like i don't know i did not i was not bored watching this it was over it's fine it's you know it's a you know gone exists in you know in one ear and right out the other but um, i think we both kind of agreed maybe the leads aren't aren't great here ross uh is there anyone you did want to highlight uh kind of in this film who stood out for you 
yeah, I mean, it was hard just because, I, you know, I don't feel like there's anybody that's a supporting character that's really trying on the comedy end. Um, and the the serious elements are not really great. But I did just hi- wanted to highlight David Paymer, who is a great character actor who's done numerous, numerous roles over the years. Um, and he plays uh, Dr. Long in this. While, yes, he unfortunately has to deliver a Robert Oppenheimer line in a ridiculous thing, that is not his fault. Mm-hmm. Um, he is doing what he can. Um, I think he does take the serious elements serious, and you know he's trying what he can, but it's not his he's, fault. He's chewing some scenery here, and he's he's having some fun. Although, yeah. if this was a real comedy, they definitely would have pointed out somewhere that his name is Dick Long. Like, yes. I feel like they did just kind of leave that one. That um, nope, left it on the table right no, there. No, he he is he's he's wonderful in this. Um, there was one other kind of small supporting turn that I really enjoyed. Um, and that's Daniel Hugh Kelly, um, who he plays uh, Colonel Vitelli, who's kind of the good guy of the military who comes in and helps them. And he just has a very deadpan military delivery to everything, I think, um, while playing a realistic and believable uh, military leader in in this setting, I think he also uh, manages to get some humor out of that character and kind of poke some fun at it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that that's who I highlight, Daniel Hugh Kelly. Um, I think especially at the end, he uh, he has some really a really great scene with the two of them. That's really funny. Yeah, which was actually you know just to transition there. That that's my favorite scene in the movie. That my funniest mm-hmm. scene in the movie is the the end. They've stopped the bad guys. They've done this, and. Uh, Skeet Ulrich and Cubicune Jr. are talking to Daniel Hugh Kelly, and suddenly Cubicune Jr. is like, you know, we've done all this stuff. We deserve something, right? We deserve some sort of compensation. We deserve something for all the sacrifices that we've done. And, you know, Daniel Hugh Kelly is like, yeah, you know, you're right. But, you know, it's funny, in a reference to earlier in the movie, where which is what sent uh, the colonel to prison because he knows all these secrets also and that as a person with all of these secret knowledge he needs to be contained and put away and whatever he basically threatens the two of them saying <laughs> you know or i could say that you basically now have all of this knowledge that you shouldn't mm-hmm. have and i would be required to hunt you down and to eliminate you at all costs to which then they both kind of go you know what i think we feel really good i think you yeah. know what patriotism <laughs> is a great way to suddenly live with this it, it's a nice kind of funny moment i again as i said i didn't find much things that made me laugh but that got a nice little chuckle from me yeah um, what about you trip is there a moment you wanted to highlight there is an early i think the closest the movie gets to that kind of you know you talked about movie mad libs and there's a lot of like trying to get like the lethal weapon feel in here of the you know and play off of some of those tropes and i think the closest it gets is uh kind of right after they take the truck and hit the road Skeet Ulrich wants to go to Missoula or go through Missoula to get to the army base. Cuba Gooding Jr. wants to go around. They have a fight. Um, Cuba Gooding Jr. I feel is always at his funniest when he's flustered. So like he's getting all fed up with Skeet Ulrich. Skeet Ulrich just keeps pushing him. Just the way that Cuba Gooding Jr. keeps saying Missoula which is a funny town name to say, I think, uh, is really funny. I wanted more of that banter between them. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think they could get it because I think the unfunniest part of this movie is just Skeet Ulrich. I think he he is not a comedian. Like, he does not seem to, to get that. And I feel like had you replaced him in this movie with someone 
with some sort of comedic instinct to them, you automatically could have bumped it up a star. Because I think Cuba Gooding Jr. is entertaining enough to watch in this that give him a better partner and you could have had something here. So I'm just going to say Skeet Ulrich, not funny. Uh, Skeet Ulrich, really great when giving Kevin Williamson dialogue to to play yes. off of and quips from that. <laughs> not as great here with this script. No. It, it doesn't help him. I didn't find many unfunniest moments just because it's like I can't really think of stuff that was like jokes that didn't fully land or anything like that. But there is like a small gay panic joke, like while they're on the dam and they're like being held there. It's like reach into my pocket. Well, what are you doing? Like, it's like, all right, really? We're doing this? Like, yeah, that's... but even that, like, I didn't even see it as much as gay panic as like they're about to die. And I believe that Skeet Ulrich says to him, put your hand in my pants. And it's more like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, just I, I felt like no matter who it. said that to him at that moment, he was going to be like, wow, you want me to do what? Like, it comes off it, like it can't. I just was like, man. Yeah, not just, a great joke. But yeah, even yeah. that. So, you know, our audience has now heard what we think of this movie. Uh, let's see uh, what the critics and the good people at Letterboxd the users of Letterbox think of this movie, Chill Factor, Trip. What do you think the average score is on Rotten Tomatoes for the movie Chill Factor? Oh, I don't know. 2.7, let's say. Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, I'm sorry. Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, so our critics, our critics, I can't imagine the critics really liked this. It just seems sort of a bland, generic movie to watch. So I'll say it's at like uh, 30%. Uh, you are too high, my good man. It is 10%. 10%. That is less than whatever that horrible thing we watched last week was. Yes. Yeah, less than, again. No. Less than Love Stings. No, which I no, agree with that, you, that is, is baffling. No, no. Um, Nathan Rabin, writing for the AV Club at the time, wrote, Chill Factor boasts a premise so horrifyingly banal that it seems less like the plot of a movie than a proposal a screenwriter would put in the mouth of a clueless producer character to illustrate Hollywood's humorous lack of creativity. Hard to argue. <laughs> there we go. Um, Roger Ebert gave it two out of four stars. I would recommend people to actually seek out Roger Ebert's review for this because he talks about a contest that he tried to run for uh, a sequel, a third movie in the Speed franchise, which he claims this could kind of qualify for. Yeah. Read it. It's a lot longer than I need to for this small quip. But he basically says, with just a tweak here and there, however, it could qualify as a parody of Speed, one of those airplane-type spoofs by Zucker Abrams Zucker. Where are the ZAZ boys when we need them? Which kind of yes. goes to your point. About I, I you think exactly. Them. Like it, it almost plays like a parody there in that in that beginning scene. And High we didn't chops. talk about uh, uh, Peter Firth. Uh, yeah. Oscar nominee Peter Firth plays the the heavy here, and also just chewing every bit of scenery he can and having fun and like oh, yeah. just push it a little bit more. And I think it would be it would be really funny. So yeah, yeah. He you know he is chewing up so much so much scenery. Also forgot he was an Oscar nominee as I'm like yeah for Equus. Oh, oh yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's uh, you know that's what critics thought. What do you think the good and fine users of Letterboxd have as the average score for Chill Factor? Um, I still think it's two point seven, Russ. You are too high. It's okay, two point four. Okay, but there no we go. fans, no fans. There of are Chill no Factor. fans in this movie. 
no fans are listed here. Wow, um, that's baffling. Like, wow, people just really, I, I don't know. It's it, baffling it to me, me. that the low numbers on this because you I should... found it inoffensive and just fine to watch. Yeah, it, it's, it, you know, it, again, compared to last week, this is actually up. It's not well, huge yeah. up, but it's up. Um, so this movie came out the same weekend, uh, September 3rd, as a movie we've already covered, Outside Providence. It came out okay. that kind of uh, Labor Day weekend, that mm-hmm. you know, weekend. Uh, Runaway Bride and Bowfinger in the top four. Uh, Runaway Bride was two, Bowfinger was four. Mickey Blue Eyes came in seventh, and The Muse at nine. Uh, this movie is kind of a notorious bomb. Uh, it made about eleven point seven, almost eleven point eight million dollars, depending on who you talk to as to what the budget was. Um, Wikipedia has it as somewhere between thirty-four and seventy million dollars. Uh, Box Office Mojo has it at seventy million dollars. This movie does not do well. It opens no, at they six. They do blow up lots of stuff. Like I do understand yeah. that, but yeah, they blow up a bridge. Both yeah. sides of it, not a bridge, a tunnel. Both the sides, tunnel, of yeah. It. Both sides of the tunnel, and yeah. Um, it it opened at sixth that weekend. It's opening weekend. I mean, better than outside Providence was was at eleven, but still. I'm pretty much. That's why no one, I think, the writing director, like they don't get a chance to work again after this, like because it's such a bomb and it does not deserve that negative opinion of it. Is it? I, great? I think it's no, harsher, but it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely harsher than it probably needs to be, but it's also not anything that I would be like, hold on, everybody, stop what you're doing! Underappreciated movie, chill factor! Uh, but you were wondering last week if we did have another underappreciated movie here. So uh, let's see, Ross, if you appreciated Blue Streak, uh, what is what is this about? So Miles Logan is a jewel thief who, along with three other guys is attempting to steal a diamond worth around 17 million dollars however the plan goes awry and it turns out that one of his crew members deacon is greedy enough to betray everyone to take the diamond himself miles is able to fake him out and hide the diamond in the air duct of the building being constructed across the street however miles is immediately caught and sent to prison for two years when he gets out he discovers the building has been completed and is now an LAPD station. Miles gets his old cohort to make him a fake badge and record so he can pretend to be a detective to get into the building and get the diamond. Things don't go as planned when the LAPD believe he is a real detective and he is paired with the recently promoted Carlson. Miles slowly, somehow rises up the ranks immensely quickly in 24 hours to lead detective of burglary while his cover is almost blown multiple times. Meanwhile, Deacon is aware he is out and is waiting for him to recover the diamond so he can take it for himself. This all culminates with an undercover drug bust in conjunction with the FBI of one of the most dangerous drug dealers, which Deacon and Miles' other former partner, Tully, crash. In the end, Miles chases Deacon into Mexico, kills him, and takes the diamond. Carlson has figured out who Miles is, but lets him go because Miles happens to be standing just over the Mexican border and is out of jurisdiction. So, Trip, did this movie work for you like Martin Lawrence's other 1999 film that we watched for this podcast? Or was it a step down from that movie, Life? Well, it's definitely, I think, a step down from Life because that's probably the biggest surprise I've had so far in this series. And uh, especially how Life is going for a lot more than just laughs. 
Um, and this movie isn't. And I, I kept hoping that maybe it would try to say something, but it really just wants to be an action comedy film. Um, and that's fine. And I think it is enjoyable enough. Um, Martin Lawrence, definitely a discovery for me still. I said after life, I was more curious to see his other stuff than perhaps I was. He wasn't just really a personality I had ever considered much. And he is a lot of fun in this movie, I think. And he really carries just kind of a ho-hum plot throughout, just based on his own, you know, personality and, and comedic, uh, sensibilities. So, uh, what about you, Ross? Did you enjoy this? Yeah, I think Martin Lawrence is really fun in this movie. I think he absolutely is carrying this movie because the plot line of this movie, do not think too hard about this movie. It is confounding. (laughs) Like, every level when you really think about the plot of this film, it is insane. (laughs) Like, again, as I said, this all happens in what seems to be about 24 hours. Like, it is crazy. Yeah. Oh, all this, the machinations of all this. It's one of those movies that really just relies on everybody making the stupidest decisions that they can. Like, yes, yes, no one in this movie stops to think for a second, but just like, oh, okay, we'll just go along with this. And the next thing you know, they're in this huge mess. Absolutely. And obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, I agree with you. This is definitely not as good as Life. I think Life is a more complex movie. It's it's very talented and and has a lot of very good things going with it. But this is still fun. And it it really is thanks to Martin Lawrence, who is kind of got so much energy in this movie and Mm -hmm. is so game to do a lot of stuff that it really his kind of energy becomes infectious when you're watching it this movie is about 90 something minutes it moves very quickly it is not trying to stop it's not trying to make you think because if it tries to make you think you're then going to be like oh this is dumb (laughs) yeah no and it it is not boring at all i i guess that really as i was watching it i was thinking about in many ways it reminded me of something like a beverly hills cop right or like many sort of um eddie murphy movies and i feel like in in his movies like this, he would have maybe tried to make some sort of statement with them. And I guess I just, and maybe this is 2024 me looking back 25 years. Um, although the issues that we have today were still issues that were going on in 1999. Yeah. But for a movie about, you know, a black man kind of moving into an all white police station. There is not one minority in this entire police station, I don't think. You know, teaming up with a white partner, I felt like there were lots of chances for this film to maybe at least grapple with some some sort of issue of race or anything. And it just seems to leave all of that behind, which is fine, but Yeah, I don't think it has any interest fully in being other than a fun comedy there's elements to it i mean look it's the lapd in the 90s and you know there is you know definitely some jokes about him kind of taking advantage of the fact that he's a police officer right and that suddenly Mm -hmm. it's like oh i could just drive recklessly i could do this i would also say the or maybe that just all the police officers in this movie are idiots like maybe that is the statement it's making that they'll just believe whatever anybody tells them yeah and and i would also say that one of the more disappointing elements of this movie is I like Luke Wilson. I do actually like Luke Wilson. He, um, by the way, is coming off of a year, the year before, where he has a small part in Rushmore. He's doing Home Fries, which was kind of a you know romantic comedy that it did okay. You know, he's done Scream 2. He's done Bottle Rocket. He's kind of clearly, you know, on the way up. 
I just feel like part of it is his character doesn't have much to do, and you just kind of feel like it's not he, he it's just not really fully working. He he um, gets acted off the screen by Martin Lawrence just yeah. about every time they're on screen. I think I like Luke Wilson too. I think we have seen through his career Luke Wilson develop into a good actor. I think yes. Luke Wilson at this point is still maybe figuring Luke Wilson at this point is still maybe figuring out everything because give him he give is. him two more years. Give him, give him two more couple, years. Give him a couple more years. Yeah. And when he, he uh, when he becomes Richie in um, Royal Tenenbaums, which is my favorite part of Royal Tenenbaums, and I love him in that movie. But he he has done like, and he's already obviously come up with Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. And speaking, actually, funnily enough, I'm just realizing this uh, in terms of connections to these two movies. He obviously is in Scream Two, the stab version of Skeet Ulrich's character. Oh, he is, isn't he? Yes, he that's plays right, so. the Billy Loomis yes. in Stab. Yeah, but, but even that, I, I was shocked to see Luke Wilson get second billing and get some high billing in this too for his part because I don't. I remember at this time, kind of Owen Wilson starting to really break out. Um, I seem to remember later on being like, oh, there's Owen Wilson's brother, who's also an actor. And then, you know, Kim kind of behind that. So I was surprised to see him uh, kind of front and center in here. But yeah, no, he's not not the best. Yeah. And I mean, look, you have a, a screenplay that's written by two guys who only have made one other screenplay, a movie called Short Time in 1990, which is Michael Berry and John Blumenthal. And then Stephen Carpenter, who mostly had done like kind of like horror, eventually he would create the series Grimm on NBC. This is kind of like, uh, seems like a little bit of an outlier for him. And you have a director in Les Mayfield who's coming off of making the Robin Williams uh, kind of remake Flubber. And, uh, you know, I believe that was a remake. I believe there was like a, yeah it's a remake of the absent-minded professor there we go thank you i knew this i did see flubber (laughs) when i was a kid trust me saw that in a theater had a great time but he'd also done like encino man and the remake of miracle on 34th street so very different you know he seems to be kind of you know generic more family-friendly comedies in some respect I'm sorry, I got distracted looking up what short time was, and I remember this movie from when I was a kid, and I really liked this movie. I feel like I saw this movie several times when I was a kid. It's like Dabney Coleman, and he only has like 24 hours left or something, and it's uh, it's a funny little movie. So yeah, I just... Somehow sorry, I... Some, that- some nostalgia hit, so yeah. Somehow I'm not surprised that a movie starring Dabney Coleman is right in your wheelhouse. Eight-year-old Trip loved him some Dabney Coleman movies. So, <laughs> Huge yeah. fan of Dabney Coleman. Trip is there ever and always. There we go. Uh, is there any supporting turn that you want to highlight in this movie? Yeah, um, the one that really kind of stuck out to me. I think there's a lot of actors, really good actors in this, who are doing just fine. Like you know, your William Forsyth plays a cop. I love William Forsyth. Uh, for my beloved Dick Tracy and Raising Arizona, you know, and uh, several of the other cops, they're good, they're fine, they're doing what they need to do. Um, One person who I think does get highlighted a little bit is an actor, uh, Saverio Guerra. He plays Benny, who is the, uh, like, um, pickup driver for the drug dealer at the end who they kind of arrest and then get to turn with them. And uh, he is very very flustered and very scared of everything and not really a great you know driver for 
them and not what you would expect in that role, I think. And is very funny in in the part of just uh, kind of being overly nervous about everything that's going on. So um, I thought I'd highlight him. I thought he was uh, a good little flavor to this movie. Yeah, he's very fun. Very enjoyable. Don't touch him. Can't touch me. I went with uh, a person who obviously fairly well known and even in 1999 was probably definitely his career was starting to really be on the upswing. That's Dave Chappelle. Um, Chappelle in this movie is the only person, I think, who is able to fully kind of match Martin Lawrence in terms of the kind of energy that Chappelle, and that comes from A, being a stand-up, but I think Chappelle also does have this kind of wiry energy, especially at that point in his career, that he is, the, the scenes with the two of them together, they play off each other very well. And I think that was something, I mean, the whole scene where he, you know, Tully has gone to go rob a convenience store. And it's, of course, the convenience store that Martin Lawrence happens to be in. So now he has to stop this robbery and not get Tully killed because he doesn't want his friend to get killed. But he doesn't know that he's, like, being a fake cop. And there's just, like, these certain things, like, you know, just the interactions between the two of them. It's very fun. How and why he is in the climax of this movie... I don't know. There is no explanation about how he shows up suddenly at the like drug deal or drug bust. I don't know. Don't ask me. It doesn't make any logical sense. But I think he is a very fun and energetic presence in this movie. Yeah, he exhausted me in this movie. Like I think a lot of a lot of Dave Chappelle does that, and I don't think you you need him because I think the humor is Martin Lawrence being sort of chaotic amongst all of the straight guys. And then he's trying to do like subpar Martin Lawrence kind of in there too. And I think everything he does in this movie, Martin Lawrence does better. I I would definitely agree with you in the sense that I do think Martin Lawrence does it better. I also just think that Martin, Dave Chappelle's, his strengths as both a comedian and was really as a storyteller when his, Mm -hmm. with his standup. And I don't always know if he's the greatest actor. So th- Martin Lawrence is a better actor. I mean, look, we saw it in life. So I think Martin Lawrence is able to channel that in a better way than Chappelle can. But I think he is the only person in the movie that is trying to kind of match his energy. Equal it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I think he's probably fine. I guess I didn't like the character or the way that he's used, maybe, as much. Makes so. sense. Makes sense. Uh, Dave Chappelle also just not my favorite comic presence, so... Um, what about uh, some funny moments in here? Is there a, a, probably a Martin Lawrence moment? I'm guessing that you found you found entertaining. There, <laughs> the moment that got me laughing the most in this movie is the the moment where he realizes that the building that he has hide, hidden the diamond in is an LAPD building. And he goes there, and he looks at it, and he's just on this sidewalk, kind of losing his mind, like, no, no. And this old woman walks by, and he's like, excuse me, ma'am, is this an LAPD building? And she kind of, like, looks at him like, yes, like, what do you, it's got LAPD, like, on the run. And just, like, his reaction of just, like, complete just like frustration astonishment and then like trying to will it as if it's like not really an lapd like it must be something else like it's it really it did make me laugh and i it was such a fun moment 
That is fun. Right, right after that would be my funniest moment, um, which I think when he decides to go through with this, I'm going to pretend to be a cop. He decides he needs to learn to act like a cop. So you get a montage of him watching cops in his uh, motel room as he practices booze and practices things that he says to them. Uh, and then when he gets there, he gets in and he gets on an elevator with all the cops. Um, and there is a really funny moment where the doors open and it's all cops in there. And he kind of panics for a second, like, wait a minute, it's all cops in the elevator. And then realizes, well, yes, I'm at a police station. But then he goes in and he's trying to like mimic the way the guys are standing and figure out the, the correct cop posture. I think um, the physical comedy that Martin Lawrence does there is, is really funny. And the things that he chooses will make him sellable as a cop are, are funny too so yeah no it's a good it's a good one it definitely is is there any uh unfunniest moments for you uh, not really there is one bit um octavia spencer shows up in this movie also i feel like we've seen her a couple times now um on this on this podcast when you kind of go back to these old movies and you realize some of these actors who oh you have been around for 15 years just john hawks one, too in this movie. one scene piece of john hawks pops up in here yes a, a young john hawks but um where she uh she opens the door he gets out of prison he goes back to meet his uh gr- who he thinks is still his girlfriend obviously <laughs> is not because she did not visit him for two years in prison but uh octavia spencer opens the door and immediately he goes in about how fat she's gotten um of course she's the cousin and the actual girlfriend is still skinny and you know quote-unquote hot but it's the only bit we get of octavia spencer it's really just kind of fat shaming her right there it just it comes across as a mean joke uh it comes across as yeah just nasty and uh puts one of our great actresses in a really uncomfortable situation i think so uh yeah just the octavia spencer bit did not work for me agree not great yeah and Um, is then followed almost right away with fat cop jokes yeah. Uh, right after that, which kind of build off of it also. Yeah. I went with, there seems to be a running thing in this movie about the police beating up suspects. And specifically, it's Martin Lawrence, you know, constantly when he, they arrest Dave Chappelle and he's interrogating him. And when he, actually both of our supporting turn nominees, uh, yes. Severio Guerra too. Yeah. But it's not just that Martin Lawrence is doing it because obviously it's very exaggerated and he is technically not a real cop. It is the reactions from William Forsyth and Luke Wilson that is kind of troubling to me in like ways where they're like, at one point, William Forsyth tells him he should have hit him with a phone book. There's another moment when they're watching him interrogate, uh, you know, Benny, and they both get this kind of like glee about like, maybe we should go in and help him and like mm-hmm. go do this. And I was like, this is just not for this movie. It doesn't fit. It, and it's not no. saying anything, and it just kind of comes off as being like really kind of odd. And that maybe is your moment where you could sort of make some sort of statement about like, you know, kind of address it, even in just a throwaway line or something that, you know, spoiler alert, in the 90s, the LAPD did not have the greatest record no. for dealing, especially with, uh, you know, black people who were arrested, you know, and... uh yeah, and beating them. And the film just kind of lets it go. You do get some good Martin Lawrence physical humor. Like, the cartoonish ways that he is beating these people up, it is not threatening. 
you know, which I don't know whether that makes it better or worse. Um, the visual of him having Saviero Guerra like trapped behind the glass door and his face like scrunched like a Looney Tunes cartoon um, is a funny little bit. But again, in context, it's a missed opportunity, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Trip, our audience has heard what we think. Now it's time for our favorite part of the show again. Uh, what did criti- cri- What do critics and audiences think of this movie? What do you think the average Rotten Tomato score is for Blue Streak? Yeah, these are hard because this is kind of the hardest to choose because this movie is is fine. I can see you giving it a positive review, but you know, critics aren't always the fairest to when major comedy stars make a movie like this. So I'm going to guess uh, maybe barely fresh, maybe like a 60% on the nose. Uh, unfortunately, this is much lower. Oh, it no. is an average of 36%. Ouch, that's really rough. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I agree. It's It seems a little rough. Uh, Wesley Morris, writing for the San Francisco Examiner at the time, wrote, uh, when he was talking about Martin Lawrence, he says, now he's in Blue Streak, a throwaway stand-ups action flick or Beverly Hills Cop for funny men who've lost their way. Okay, there you go. You know, Roger Ebert, though, fan of this movie. I feel like I'd never say this. He obviously writes for uh, you know the Chicago Sun-Times, but yeah. um, mm-hmm. a lot of these reviews I'm finding on his own personal website, on rogereber.com where yeah. he has a mm-hmm. fantastic um you Ar- know, archive of everything he ever wrote absolutely so, yeah. it's, it's really a great thing uh but he gave this movie three stars and said okay. blue streak ranks um in the upper reaches of the cop buddy genre up there in lethal weapon territory you know, one thing Roger Ebert always stressed, too, was, like, you judge and you rate the movie based on what it is doing, right? Or what it's trying to do, right? So, like, you don't compare a blue streak to, you know, a being John Malkovich or, you know, some of the more serious movies that, that came out this year, you know? And I think in terms of cop buddy movies, this is kind of in the upper, it is, a, you know, three out of four um, in that in that genre. So uh, this movie, you know, comes out the uh, the weekend of September 17th at number one at the box office. It is a hit trip. I mean, th- now to be Ross, fair, you didn't ask of- me about the letterbox score. I didn't. Uh, and I will do that right now. And what do you think the letterbox score is for this movie? Um, oh, so I would say I hope letterbox is kinder than the critics were. So I will say, uh I'll say it's also at a 3.0. Nailed it! Right on the money. Average 3.0. I believe this also has, since we've been doing this the last... It has 71 fans. Yeah, good for them. Um, Yes, so this movie comes out the weekend of September 17th. It is a big hit. Uh, It opens up number one at the box office. Now, depending on who you look at, Box Office Mojo has the budget at $65 million. Wikipedia has it at 36. That's a big jump. But it makes $117.7576 million. So, yeah, big I hit. had no recollection of it being that big of a hit. So, awesome. It It's number one at the box office. The weekend comes out. Other big movies that come out that weekend, For Love of the Game. Sam Is that Raimi. the Kevin Costner something? Yeah, baseball, baseball. movie was directed by Sam Raimi. Uh, a small movie called American Beauty. I think it went on to do a couple things, you know, at that year's yep. Oscars. Um, and also just uh, a movie that I wanted to highlight because it's based on a uh, a great Kurt Vonnegut novel. 
uh, Breakfast of Champions. Oh, which is a hard movie to see okay. now, but starred Bruce Willis based yeah. on the. Uh... Never seen that one. I definitely, probably not this early, but I know I definitely did see American Beauty at least once in the movie theater. Of course, to to any seventeen year old cinephile in nineteen ninety nine, American Beauty was a a huge deal, and I at the time thought that movie was just mind blowingly brilliant. Um, I have not revisited it in quite a while. I don't know. If that would hold up, you know, um, I know there are some problematic uh, elements to that movie, uh, I think, looking back at it. But um, that was a huge, it was a huge cultural phenomenon at the time. And, sure. Uh, it was a huge, a huge deal for probably, you know, I would have called it one of the best movies of the year, uh, definitely at that point. And it was rooting for it at the Oscars, I remember. So, um, yeah. Will American, not be talked def- about Definitely out to see that. No. so <laughs> Not a copy. Yeah. Um, no. Also in the top ten at the, this weekend, still hanging around. Runaway Bride at six, Bowfinger at eight, and Mickey Blue Eyes at ten. Okay, so. the legs on Runaway Bride are quite quite still running. There. Still running. Yes, there we go. Uh, but what about uh, other movies, Ross? Is there is there another good you know comedy action movie that you might uh, throw on to make a triple feature with these? Yeah, so I. I kind of thought of other movies that are good kind of comedy heist movies. And uh, I went with a film from 1972 called The Hot Rock. Uh, it's directed by Peter Yates and it stars the great Robert Redford, George Siegel, Ron uh, Leibman, uh, and, and several others. It's based on a script by Donald E. Westlake and William Goldman. And it is a movie about this crew that is constantly trying to steal this big diamond from a museum, but things keep going wrong. And they constantly then have to go do another heist to try to get the diamond because like that one failed and now they have to, the diamond gets, so they have to then go do, like they, it's like this constant thing. So it made me obviously with Blue Streak, a movie also about a diamond heist gone wrong in some respects. The Hot Rock is a really fun movie, and it's a great it '70s movie. And again, I you know when you get a chance to watch '70s Robert Redford, the answer is always take it. Um, always so, fun. A, a movie I feel the last couple of years has kind of entered like at least cinephile discussion a little bit more. Like, yeah, I don't think sure. I'd really heard of it until a couple of years ago, and people kept talking about it, and I caught up with it. It's a fun, fun heist movie. Yeah, um, so, I really love a good heist movie. So, um, absolutely, yeah, that's, that's always a good one. Trip, what um, about you? What would you pair to make this a triple feature? To make it a triple feature. Um, I went uh, the opposite route and with something a little newer from 2018, um, a film called The Trouble With You, or if you go with the original French title, En Liberté, En Liberty. Uh, this is a, a French kind of comedy action film um, that plays with a lot of these sort of same ideas um, as I think these two movies. Um, it stars Adele Hanel, who I know you love from Portrait of a Lady Under the Fire. Yes, Portrait of a Lady on Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Is that what the name? Yes, is? Portrait of a Lady yes. on Fire. Fantastic. I couldn't figure out my, prep- my prepositions there. So uh, yes, so she is um, the widow of a police officer who was killed in action, and his partner went to prison uh, afterwards. And the partner gets out, and she has realized that the partner was framed, and that her beloved husband 
uh, was really the actual uh, crooked cop in the whole situation. And through a whole bunch of mishaps and hijinks ensuing, uh, the two of them, with him not realizing who she is, uh, kind of go on this whole um, action escapade to try to clear his name. Uh, he thinks she's a prostitute the whole time, which leads to all sorts of good good laughs. Uh, Audrey Tato pops up for a little bit as his wife. It's a really fun kind of like throwback 90s action comedy, I think, but also does have just a little more bite than maybe you would expect from, uh, you know, the two movies that we saw. So um, it's a fun little movie. I recommend checking it out. Again, The Trouble With You. It's popping up. It's a couple places streaming. I think Canopy maybe is where I saw yeah, it. Yeah, so. I wasn't aware of it. I'll have to add it to the watch list, which I just did while you were talking. Um, <laughs> I had to make sure of that. So Trip, you're looking at Letterboxd. You're looking at those gray stars. You're going to turn them green. What are your final ratings for both Chill Factor and Blue Streak? Um, I think, um, you know, just in terms of watchability, Blue Streak definitely is is a fun watch. That if it's on TV, if you come across it streaming, check it out. I give it three stars. It is nothing special, um, but it does the job well. Chill Factor was almost there for me. It just was missing something. So I went two and a half for Chill Factor and three for Blue Streak. Uh, we are dead in alignment on uh blue streak right with the average of letterbox too three stars there we go. yeah i think obviously it's a fun that's movie. the right answer yeah correct it, it's a fun movie that's mindless and don't go in there trying to figure this all out just enjoy the ride for what it is um i was a little lower than you for chill factor i gave it two stars it just really is kind of a bland meh movie to me that just you know very forgettable uh so yeah there we go. So what, uh, Ross, are we taking a look at next week then? Where are we headed? Well, Trip, we're going in a very different direction. Well, I guess technically not so much. It is an action comedy that we'll be doing. Ooh. But I would probably say in a very different uh, tier of quality. Let's go with that. Um, okay. We will be handling David O. Russell's Three Kings, which oh. is available to rent on Amazon, Apple TV, or YouTube, or you could try to find it on a DVD at your local library because we here at A Trip Through Comedy support physical media and local libraries. Trip, Three Kings. I have a feeling you definitely saw this movie when it came out. I did. I saw this in the theater. I have not seen it since. Um, I have very little recollections of it. I remember really liking it when it came out um again like if i found these movies toothless like this is a movie that is all bite if i remember it's a really strong kind of critique of the first iraq war um i remember it being ultra violent like really i remember the shots of like bullets going into people and like you see it going through the body um but that's really all i remember about this so i'm really curious to go back and look at it i feel like it was a big thing when it came out and then it just sort of disappeared from the conversation like no one really talks about it much since then so i'm curious to see uh see how it holds up and yeah i feel like it's well regarded i think it is well regarded, but movies. just not talked about a whole lot like you know yeah well there's not you know and we could talk about this obviously more next week i mean the the first gulf war doesn't have a heck of a lot of movies um uh -huh. and this is probably one of the better known ones. It's probably mm -hmm. like this in Jarhead, maybe. 
And so I do think it. Is it Jarhead the first Gulf War? Is that about Jarhead, the second? I'm, Pretty sure is the first. Gulf I don't even know. War. We'll have to do some research on the Gulf War before we, uh, yeah, before we get to. Uh, and so, uh, it definitely is a movie that it, it. I think it has a very good reputation. Yes, looking quickly up at Wikipedia, it does look like Jarhead. It is. Gulf it's war. about the first Gulf War, but it also definitely the book came out in two thousand three. Yes. the movie came out in two thousand five. It yeah. wanted people to be making connections. To, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. So this the, the second war. This I'm very intrigued to rewatch. I like you have seen this movie before. Haven't seen it in several years, so I'm really actually looking forward to rewatching this and hopefully having a really good conversation about a movie that you know. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. I. I like a lot of David O. Russell's stuff, sometimes even more than than other people do. And I know, you know, in recent years, he he is maybe something of a problematic director, but I think that um, his films always have some interesting things to say. So I'm curious to take a look at it. Next week, Three Kings! Three Kings, there we go. In the meantime, um, you can uh, find me, share... I don't know, whatever you want to about Chill Factor uh, on uh, whatever social media you want. X, Threads, Blue Sky. I really want to just focus on Blue Sky, everybody, and, and get off the the other stuff. Uh, or Letterboxd, I'm at TripBurton13. Uh, if you go to my Letterboxd also, you can find all sorts of information about the show. I try keeping some, uh, some lists, and my reviews there all have you know links to the show. So uh, do try to check that out. Um, and you can find me on the website formerly known as Twitter X and Letterboxd and Threads and Blue Sky at R Bratton. The show is also at all of those social media spots at ATTC Pod. Uh, or you can always email us your longer thoughts at a trip through comedy at gmail.com. Again, that is trip with two P's. We are still anxiously awaiting the long form defense of love stinks if you've got yes, it we are we're, we're <laughs> the email is open um our theme music is so alive instrumental by john worthy music you can find his work on the free music archive or wherever you listen to music and as always we will see you farther along down the road I can't believe so much bad shit can happen on such a beautiful day.